Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. Please turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Um, this title of this message is the same as last week, Don't You Know, but it's part two. And uh, there's a few more things that Paul wanted to communicate to the, to the Corinthians. Uh, don't you know this? And, and the, the acts, it's a rhetorical question because they should know. And so we'll be going through that uh, this morning. One of the things I wanted to uh, just kind of reflect on was the church in Corinth as a whole, or in general, I should say. Um, the church consisted mainly of Gentiles. It was uh, the majority of Corinthian believers were non-Jews, and we kind of get a hint from that in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 2, Paul says, you know that you were Gentiles, carried away to these dumb idols, however you were led. So, so the majority of believers in Corinth at the, in the church there were Gentiles. Um, now, the Corinthian culture, the city itself, it was one of the most luxurious cities uh, of the world. It had two ports, you can see a kind of a map there, and they actually had a canal uh, that was, I don't know if you can see the little line running between the two ports, and, and so uh, if you were on the one sea, you could, you could take your, your boat, your ship, and you could transport it in this canal to the other side. You know, it, it saved a lot of travel. Uh, you were able to transport goods uh, uh, from the western to the eastern side, and because of that, Corinth was like a major hub of, of commerce, of, of just riches and wealth. And uh, they actually also uh, celebrated the Isthmith, Isthmus, I need a lesp here, Isthmian games, I don't know, Isthmian games, whatever, Isthmus games, I guess you could, I could call them that. Um, and uh, that was a tough one for me. Um, and also, because it being a port city and uh, just major, major uh, 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 commerce and uh, uh, just a very wealthy city, there were a lot of foreigners that would come to Corinth uh, and they would bring their vices with them and their money to spend, kind of like Las Vegas maybe or something. But uh, so, so that was the culture that the Christians in Corinth were in very wealthy, a very uh, 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 wild city, I guess I would call it. Adding to that, the Greek Epicurean philosophy, um, which was basically a philosophy of self-indulgence. You just basically live it up. You feed your own appetite, whatever. You know, you just, it, it, was, all, it was all about just enjoying everything. Uh, to, an ex to an extreme. Then on top of that was the worship of Venus. The, they had a temple of Venus there. They had 1,000 female slaves that ministered uh, under the guise of religion. They were basically prostitutes, temple prostitutes. So, so uh, visiting these prostitutes, it was a religious experience. So, so you have the wealth, uh, the vice that was brought into the city from all over the world, all the people that were there. Uh, you had the Greek Epicurean philosophy that was just rampant in those days. And then you had the worship of Venus which legitimized sexual immorality uh, in the guise, under the guise of religion. Um, it got so bad, actually, Corinth had quite a reputation. To Corinthianize was a term used in that day and age, and it basically was to live a promiscuous life. A Corinthian girl 
was basically the term for a prostitute. I mean, that's the reputation that Corinth had. Now, there were some Jewish believers in the church in Corinth. They would have been all too familiar with sexual purity because Judaism requires sexual uh, purity. However, the Corinthians, the Gentiles that they just were born again, they came out of that culture, and now they're born again. Now they have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Um, they didn't have that background of sexual purity ingrained in them. They had just the opposite. And uh, now Paul's teachings to the Gentiles, I'm going to read a few different verses out of some different places. But in Colossians 2.16, Paul is dealing with dietary restrictions. And he says, so let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths. Very freeing to the Gentile believers because of the Judaizers that would follow behind Paul and they would say, hey, no, if you want to be a Christian, you first have to become a Jew. And so by doing that, you have to be circumcised. You have to, you know, eat the same foods we eat. You have to do all these things. And Paul says, no, 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 you're saved by faith in Christ Jesus, not in works not by works or not by legalism. And so he would, whenever he would go to these uh, Gentile ch or these cities and he would start, uh, uh, you know, start up a church, he would make sure that the Gentile believers understood that they weren't bound by these legalistic requirements that the Jews were required. So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or new moon or Sabbath. Later on in chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians, verse 8, he says, but food does not commend us to God for neither if we eat are we the better nor if we do not eat are we the worse and then in Rome in uh, his letter to the Romans 14 verse 14 I know and am convinced by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself but to him who considers anything to be unclean to him it is unclean so Paul in you know everywhere he went that's the kind of the message that he had for the Gentile believers now Verse 12 there of chapter 6, Paul starts out, he says, all things are lawful to me. And that was probably a phrase that Paul used in his teachings wherever he went, not just in Corinth. And uh, Paul probably said this at, in Corinth. You know, he had visited them earlier. He had spent a lot of time there. He had written an earlier letter that we don't have. Um, and so he probably had said this to them regarding dietary legalism. All things are lawful to me. But it appears from this next portion of scripture that we're going to be looking at that the Corinthian believers, that they, they uh, again, they are brought up in a very sex-charged, immoral environment of Corinth. And they took Paul's teaching about dietary liberty and they took it to the extreme conclusion of equating that to the freedom to participate in sexual immorality. That's what they had done. Basically, they, they had, you know, Paul says, all things are lawful to me. Hey, <laughs> all things are lawful to me, including the Corinthian prostitutes. You see, the Corinthian culture was influencing the Corinthian church rather than the other way around. The church was supposed to influence the culture. That's what the church is always supposed to influence the culture. But it had got to the point where the culture was influencing the church. As a pastor, I'm always, that, that was heavy on my heart this week. Look, are we as a church, are we influencing this community or is this community influencing us? And, and we know the answer, right? We should be the influencing agent in this, in this, in this uh, community, in our, in our uh, culture here. 
So in the second half of chapter six here, Paul takes his teachings on dietary legalism that they were well, they were, they knew all about it, but he contrasts it with sexual immorality. And so there, verse 12, all things are lawful for me. Now, did Paul mean all? I mean, after all, that's a Greek word. All means all, right? Well, you just have to back up to verse nine through 11. We talked about it last week. Paul says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the spirit of our God. So it's obvious that the sins described there in verses nine through 10 are not lawful for the believer. It's obvious Paul's not referring to those practices. Those who practice those sins without repentance will not inherit the kingdom of God. Besides, why would they need to be washed and sanctified and justified from those past sins if, if once you become a believer, hey, now you can do it? But with regards to areas such as food and drink, and you could probably fill in the blank of other, other gray areas, all things are lawful to, uh, to me, Paul says. All things are lawful for me. But look what he says there in the second half of that. But all things are not helpful. Very important principle. This concept can be applied to all the gray areas in our lives. You go, well, gray areas? There are no gray areas. Some people say that, right? There's no gray areas. Everything's black and white. And if that's your, I mean, that's awesome if that's the way you look at things. But to me, man, there's some gray areas. Non-salvation issues that I would say they're gray. They're, 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 the, the Bible is not you know, crystal clear, or, or it is, or it doesn't, it doesn't condemn some things. And so Paul says here, for those gray areas, those non-salvation issues, maybe it's lawful, but is it helpful for me? And you know, you could take that into just about anything that you do, that you have the liberty as a Christian to do. Ask yourself this, is it helpful for me? Does it edify me? Edify means to build up. Does it build up? Am, am I built up by doing this? Does it edify others? Does it hamper me in my witness for Jesus Christ? Paul was very concerned about that in his own life. In chapter 9, we're going to read this. It says, Nevertheless, we have not used this right, but we endure all things, lest we hinder the gospel of Christ. There were things that Paul had the liberty to do, but he says, You know what? It's going to hinder my witness to the world around me, so I'm not gonna do that. Even though I have that liberty, I'm not gonna do it. Another question, will it cause a weaker brother or sister in the Lord to stumble? Paul says this later on in chapter eight, beware lest somehow this liberty of yours becomes a stumbling block to those who are weak. Someone who maybe doesn't understand about the liberties and they look at you and go, wow, you're doing that and it messes them up in their faith and their walk. A baby Christian, for example. Another question we should ask ourselves, is it a bad example to those who I'm in a position to influence? Paul was concerned about that. Second Thessalonians, he says this, not because we do not have authority, but to make ourselves an example of how you should follow us. So Paul was concerned. He knew that there were people looking at him and he wanted to set a good example in the things that he had the liberty to do. 
He was concerned about that. So all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. He continues here in verse 12. All things are lawful for me, he's saying it again, but I will not be brought under the power of any. And we lose this in the translation, but evidently this is a play on Greek words in that verse. Paul basically is saying this, all things are in my power, but I shall not be brought under the power of any. I'll read that again. All things are in my power, but I shall not be brought under the power of any. Of any custom, any habit that we have, no matter what it is, ask yourself this, are you controlled by it? Is it your master? Listen, don't be the slave of habit. Paul says this, 1 Corinthians 9, verse 27, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. Let me ask you this rhetorically. I don't need you to raise your hand or say anything, but can you say no to your habits? I, I have a family member, you know, uh, she, she's, I, I drink coffee, I love coffee. Um, but I can go without it. I might get a headache, but I, you know, I, it's something like I don't have to have my cup of coffee. This relative of mine has to have their cup of coffee and their cigarette first thing in the morning. Coffee and a cigarette. And you know, that's one of those gray areas. Um, I don't believe smoking cigarettes is going to send you to hell and drinking coffee. However, you're going to smell like you've been there, probably, you know. Um, but, but it's not going to send you to hell, okay? Um, you just have bad breath. Uh, <laughs> and uh, it's going to smell like, never, never mind. Anyways. <laughs> But this person can't, I mean, it's like, it controls them. I, you can see it, they control them. It's like, I can't do anything until I have that cup of coffee and that smoke. Then I, then I can do a thing. They're under the power of that. Even though it's, even though it's a, a liberty thing, it's not, a, it's not a salvation issue, she's still controlled by it. So we have to ask ourselves, is that habit that I'm in? Is, is it controlling me? Am I, do I want to be brought under the power of anything other than the Holy Spirit? So Paul says this, verse 13, foods for the stomach and the stomachs for foods, but God will destroy both it and them. Now the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God both raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. God created us with stomachs and an appetite for food. And then God created food to satisfy that natural craving for food. But the appetite for food and food itself, it's temporary, it's not eternal. But see, the Corinthians were taking that reasoning, hey, when I'm hungry, I just feed myself. I, I do that myself, by the way. <laughs> when I'm hungry, hey, I feed my stomach. But they were taking it to the wrong conclusion. When my body has a sexual appetite, hey, I satisfy it. And that was what the Corinthian culture communicated. And you know what? That's what our, uh, our community, or our community, our culture communicates to us as well. Just satisfy that. You, 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 that's a desire? Just do it. Though God made an appetite for food and provided food for that appetite, he has not made the body for any sexual immorality or sensuality, but he has made it for Christ. See, our bodies were made for the service and honor of God. It's to be an instrument of righteousness to holiness. Romans 6.19, for just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, 
so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. God is concerned with how we live our physical lives as believers. We're to live them in holiness. And he says, and God both raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. In Romans 6, verses 4 and 5, Paul says this, Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For we have been, if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. And when you and I, we come to faith in Christ Jesus, right? We're baptized. We're buried with Christ through our baptism symbolically. And then as Christ was raised up from the dead, when we come up out of that, out of the baptismal waters, it's like we're, we're risen with Christ in a sense to walk in newness of life and not in sexual immorality. And here's the next, don't you know, verse 15. Do you not know that your, mem that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. When you and I come to faith in Christ Jesus, you know, we're not just a, a, a born-again believer all by ourselves. Now we're part of the family of God. We're members of the body of Christ. Ephesians 4.16 talks about it. It says, From whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effect of working by which every part does its share causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. When you come to faith in Christ Jesus, you've got your background. You've got your history. You've got your personality. And you've got your abilities. And those don't just go away because now you're a new creation in Christ. I, 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 you know, I've got this personality, the way I've got, I, I act the way, you know, I was raised, I was influenced. So important, teaching these children, giving them that godly foundation. Praise the Lord, I had a godly foundation in my family. Some of you had, did not have that. Where am I going with that? <laughs> oh, yeah. So we come to faith in Christ, and, and God uses however we are. You know, he uses our bodies for his glory. And so sexual immorality, it not only impacts us, and we'll look at that a little bit later, but it also impacts the body of Christ that you and I are members of. How many pastors do you know that you've been, you know, maybe you've followed their teachings or you really looked up to them and they've committed sexual immorality and they've had to step away from ministry. It's like, man, it's devastating. Or maybe a, a mature believer that led you to the Lord or something. Now they've, they've fallen, they've, they've done something. Man, it, it affects us. So it doesn't just affect myself but it affects the members of Christ the body of Christ verse 16 or do you not know that he was joined to a harlot is one body with her for the two he says shall become one flesh but he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him Paul here is warning the Corinthians that committing sexual immorality with a prostitute is not only a physical act, you're just satisfying your craving, but it's something, there's something deeply spiritual that takes place, the joining of two flesh into one. And that is why God has uh, created sexual intimacy only for the married man and the woman. Because God uses it to join two individuals, two different people, and make them one, and to strengthen the marriage relationship as a result of that. 
You know, it's interesting. I've done premarital counseling many times. I've done some marriage counseling. And uh, I think maybe I was a little naive when I first got into it or got involved with it. But I think I've learned a few things over the years. One of the things that I've learned when it comes to premarital counseling, because it's like I'm, I'm always telling the, 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 the couple, it's like you need, to, you need to keep yourself sexually pure. And you know what? It's a struggle. If every single one that I've, that I've counseled before, it's been a struggle for them. And I understand. I get it. It was a struggle for myself and my wife when we were uh, engaged to try to remain sexually pure. You know, the devil does everything he can to tempt the young man and the young woman into having sex before marriage. I mean, that's, it's just like, it's, it's a struggle, you know, and, and, I, and I get it. And, and I've seen that in pretty much across the board. But then when you get to marriage counseling, funny thing happens. Marriage counseling, it seems like the devil does everything he can to keep the husband and wife from having, having sexual intimacy within the marriage. And I experienced that. It's like, it's like one of the, well, we're not having, you know, we're not being intimate together. Well, what's the deal? Well, it's because of this or that. And they're becoming, they're, they're separating. They're, they're not joined together. And it causes problems in a marriage. And, and so it's funny. Before marriage, the devil just, hey, man, you know, do it as much as you want, you know, encouraging it. After marriage, oh, no, no, don't do it. Just the opposite of what God created sexual intimacy to be for. Just the opposite. So that was a learning experience. I, I didn't realize that when I got into counseling. And I was like, wow, that's, a, that's amazing. And it's pretty much, it, it, it usually kind of it follows the same pattern. Warren Wiersbe said this, sex outside of marriage is like a man robbing a bank. He gets something, but it is not his, and he will one day pay for it. Sex within marriage can be like a person putting money into a bank. There is safety, security, and he will collect dividends. How true that is. And so Paul here says, do, do you not know that he was joined to a harlot is one body with her? And I, you guys have probably, I know I've, I've shared this illustration before, so if you've been here before and you've seen it, you can bear with me, but um, sometimes visual things are good. So here's the... Uh, the man, here's the woman, either one. You know, two individuals, and they're joined together in sexual in intimacy. And whether you're married or not, you're becoming one flesh with whoever your sexual partner is, I guess you could call it that. And, and so God had created that for marriage to strengthen, to strengthen that relationship. But the problem is, every time you have sex outside of marriage or before marriage, you're joining to someone, and every time you go, you leave, there's a part of you that's still there as part of them. It's just, there's a spiritual thing that's taking place. You're, you're there. And so uh, they, and the part of them is with you. And so what Paul is saying is, hey, if you're joining yourself to heart, you're also joining yourself to the, I mean, you're joined to the Lord. Now you're, now you're adding that into your relationship with the Lord. And, uh, you know, the sad thing, and this is just a visual representation, but the sad thing is some people, through over and over and over, there's just, there's parts of them everywhere. And there's parts of everybody as part of their lives. There's, it's a spiritual thing. It's a very fascinating thing. But um, Do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. So, 
Paul presents the issues. Paul presents the, the, the facts of the matter. Hey, it's not the same. Uh, your sexual appetite is not the same as just, you know, I'm, I'm hungry, I'm going to go out and get a burger. No, it's not the same. Sexual immorality is not lawful for the believer. So what were the Corinthian believers to do when they were tempted to sin? And they're, again, they were in a sex-charged culture. It was part of their culture, probably part of their upbringing. It was even considered a religious thing. It was legal in, in Corinth. Everything was legal. It was like, that's, that's part, and it was encouraged. So what is a believer, a Corinthian believer, to do in that kind of culture? Paul says it, verse 18, flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Notice one thing Paul did not say. He didn't say, hey, just be strong and resist it. Man, just hold fast. Hang on there. You, you, can, you can do it. Hang on. He didn't say that. He said, flee, run away. What are you and I to do when we're tempted with sexual sin? Because, you know, let's face it. We live in a sex-charged culture. It's not, I don't think it's any different than Corinth. I mean, they're, they're thousands of years before us, but the people haven't changed. The culture is quite similar. What are we to do when we're tempted with sexual sin in our sex-charged culture? And the answer is flee, run away from it. Be a Joseph or a Josephine. Now, I could have said just be a Joseph because it's like, you guys, you know. But, man, I tell you, in our day and age, I think women, you know, I don't think, I think there's a struggle for women as well. Genesis 39, 12, be a Joseph or a Josephine. Remember when uh, Potiphar's wife tried to seduce Joseph to have uh, sexual intimacy with him? So she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and ran outside. He didn't stick around. He didn't argue. He didn't try to reason. He just got out of there as fast as he could. So be a Joseph or a Josephine. Be a Job or a Jobet. <laughs> What's a Jobet? I don't know. I just made it up. Verse, uh, chapter 31, verse 1. I hope nobody names their child Jobet, but <laughs> actually, maybe it's, it's unique. Um, I have made a covenant with my eyes. Why then should I look upon a young woman? So there's things in scripture that teach us how we can, what we can do regarding the temptation uh, to commit sexual immorality. Paul says, every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. And listen, the word for sexual immorality all throughout this, it's not just fornication, okay? It's sexual immorality. The Greek word is pornea, and it includes fornication, but it also includes uh, adultery. It includes uh, pornography. It, it includes all those, anything that's outside of uh, God-ordained sex within the marriage between a man and a wife. It, it includes everything. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Proverbs 6.32 Whoever commits adultery with a woman lacks understanding. He who does so destroys his own soul. Why? Well, we're going to read here in just a couple minutes because you and I are the temple of the Holy Spirit and we're defiling the temple of the Holy Spirit. And because we are joined to the Lord through salvation, we are joining the Lord when we commit sexual immorality. We're joining the Lord to whoever or whatever way we're sinning sexually. We're, 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 dis, we're uh, contaminating that relationship, polluting that relationship, that pure relationship that we have with our Savior. 
Paul also said this in Romans 1.24, talking about those who have, have just uh, uh, given themselves over in uh, he says there in verse 24, Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves. And sexual immorality, it eventually will reduce a person to one of the lowest of motivations. And that's just acting like an animal. There's no more morals or anything. You just, you just do instinctively what your body craves. You're, you're just completely submitted to your flesh. One commentator said this, the moral and physical rottenness wrought by immorality defy one's imagination. I could go on and on talking about sexually transmitted diseases and all that stuff. We're sinning against our own bodies when we do this. Verse 19, or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, which and and you are not your own, for you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. When uh, <clears throat> Teresa's stepfather was still alive, he's, he passed away in 2010, I believe, or 2007, actually. And uh, he would always, uh, he always had brand new vehicles. Uh, he was the kind of guy that would buy a, buy a new truck. It was almost always a pickup truck. He'd buy a truck drive it for a couple years and then trade it in on another truck. And so he always had a new truck. And one time in the winter time, we were up there visiting in Duluth and, and uh, we were working on my car because we had some problems. He was a mechanic also. So we were working on my car and then he said, well, we got to go get some parts. And so he handed me the keys to his brand new truck. His name was Guido. I said, Guido, I don't want to drive your truck. He goes, well, you drive it. I, my back's hurting. And he had a bad back, so he didn't, he didn't like driving a lot. So he would, he would always throw the keys at me. And so I'm getting into, I mean, he'd, I don't think he had the truck for maybe a couple weeks or something, two weeks. Brand new, beautiful truck. We get in it, and I'm driving it. And I don't know if you know Duluth, but we're up on Orange Street, which is a, it's just up on top of the hill. And it was just, it was just snow and ice. And we're driving to uh, up by the Miller Hill Mall trying to get, there's an auto parts place up there. And I'm coming around a corner and this lady comes out of this blind corner. I mean, it was just a blind corner. Comes out in this minivan, just pulled right in front of me. I hit the brakes and I'm on ice. Nothing I could do. Whoosh, smash, just banged up his brand new truck. And I, I mean, I felt terrible. It, it was just, you know, I was like a brand new truck and I, I just, you know, busted it up and stuff. And, uh, you know, when people sometimes, I don't know, maybe you've had friends that have like, they got a brand new vehicle or a brand new this or a brand new that. So, hey, you know, ha, you know they, they're like, you could enjoy it, you know, use it or whatever. I usually, especially if it's brand new, it's like, you know what, uh, or if it's really nice, I'm like, no, nah, it's okay. I don't. I've had people offer me to ride really fancy motorcycles. I go, no, nah, it's okay. You, I'll just stick with mine. You're okay with that, you know. Um, or if somebody loans you something and, it, and it's like, man, I'm going to take care of it because it's not mine. Well, that's what Paul is trying to get across here. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own, for you were bought at a price? Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. I don't want to damage what's not mine. You might say, well, it's my body. I can do what I want. No, it's not my body. My body was purchased by Jesus Christ, by his blood. What a good way to look at anything you and I do, whether it's sexual immorality 
or regarding those gray areas in our lives, our Christian liberties. Listen, I'm not my own. I was bought at a price. Does this glorify God? Would God want me to do this or not? Whether or not I have the liberty to do it or not. It's, it's not my decision to make anymore. I'm not my own. I was purchased at a price for a price. You see, the enemy's aim for you and I as believers is to defile the temple of the Holy Spirit any way he can. He wants to render you and I full of guilt, full of shame, and full of regret. And more importantly, the ultimate goal is to render you and I ineffective and neutralized as a witness uh, for Christ. And he was doing that to the Corinthian believers there in the Corinthian culture. And he wants to do the same thing to you and I in our Corinthian culture. Because I think the culture hasn't changed. Listen, I don't want to end this on a, on a like really down thing. But here's some good news. Maybe you have. Remember what Paul said there, you know. Uh, he, he said all these things that you want to inherit the kingdom of heaven. But he says, but, and some were such of you, but now you've been washed. Now you've been justified. Listen, Isaiah 118. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are like uh, red like crimson, they shall be white, or they shall be as wool. I was thinking of that hymn, <laughs> whiter than snow. <laughs> I love that verse. It doesn't matter what you and I have done. It doesn't, you know, maybe you're here this morning and there's still some guilt or shame from what you've done in your past or regret. I don't know anybody that's not regretted, or I mean that has, yeah, that's not regretted when they've committed sexual sin. It's like, it's not like, well, I'm glad I did that. No, no, no. They're full of regret. Wish I'd never done that. Wish I'd never gone down that road. The good news is we can be forgiven. And that stain, that scarlet stain, man, it's washed away. You can be white as wool. Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Let's go, Lord.